Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. On today's episode, my plus one is Dave West, CEO and product owner of Scrum.org. Prior to joining Scrum.org, Dave was chief product officer at Tastop, and we continue to chat and share learnings frequently, so it was great to get him on the show. Not only did Dave's contributions to the industry provide key inspiration for the book, he provided more thorough feedback than any other reviewer, for which I'm eternally grateful. While Dave and I recorded this podcast prior to the pandemic, our discussion hits on the crux of digital transformation at scale. So I hope you find it both useful and timely. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to the Project to Product podcast. And I'm really excited to have one of my inspirations here, one of the people who taught me more about product management, about Agile than anyone else out there. And this is Dave West, the CEO of Scrum.org. Welcome, Dave. Oh, hi, Mick. And thank you. Gosh, I'm an inspiration. That's much to live up to on this podcast. I'll go into details on as to why that might be and the kinds of things that I learned from you when we get into the questions. But Dave actually has done some amazing things in his career. In addition to what he's doing now, he was the product manager of the Rational Unified process, which maybe not everybody loves, but I actually <laughs> thought it, <laughs> it pushed the industry in very interesting ways and paved the path for so much of what we're doing today. So Dave's actually also the former chief product officer at Tastop, where I learned from him what I did over the course of those years. And again, very close colleague and someone who I've been learning with together a lot. So Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been learning most lately and about how you're seeing these large companies who are becoming software-driven businesses, trying to adopt Agile at scale with Scrum and what you're seeing working and not working and the things that uh, keep you up at night. It's interesting, Mick. So I'm fortunate here at at Scrum.org to potter around the world talking to organizations that are doing Scrum doing Agile. And because of my title, I guess, I get to talk to executives. So I get to see organizational change. It is true to say that not every company is a software company, but it is also true to say that every company is affected by software. And whether that paradigm is a digital transformation, whether that's digital change or whatever. And what's really interesting, the theme of that in organizations is everybody's wrestling with it. And they're wrestling with it predominantly because they're going from this very much this industrial mindset where innovation happened at the start to a mindset where innovation happens continuously. And that's incredibly hard to do. I mean, you talked about it in the book, obviously using the BMW example, talking about how the flow of work and ideas happen. But it's knowledge work and the work of innovation, if that's happening throughout, where are your constraints? Where are your boundaries? Where does one bit of innovation, another bit of innovation hit? How do you manage dependencies? What's your supplier mix going to be like? What is core? What is context? Where is all these lines to be drawn? I see every organization wrestling with that, whether they call it digital transformation, whether they call that agile transformation, whether they call that scaling agile. I don't care really what they call it. Ultimately, there's this movement from the industrial paradigm to digital paradigm, and the flow of innovation has fundamentally changed everything. Yeah, and Dave, when we were working together, I like to think that I knew all of this already. There's this one story that sticks out to me because I spend a lot of time with development teams doing Agile since Ken Beck's XP block. And I thought I got this iteration stuff. And I thought I understood how flow and feedback were so important to teams and how just this continual validated learning experimentation were critical. And then I had this one really interesting experience. 
where we were launching a big new product because we'll get to this question in a second, but our previous product was a, basically a tech debt, dead end. And I was not in a developer role, no longer in a team lead role. I was running the company with the leadership team that includes yourself. And there was this moment at which you said, Mick, the kind of strategy you're asking for, the kind of basically project plan you're asking for is making me realize that thou speaks agile. You think you're being agile, but you're actually in a complete project-oriented world of certainty and milestones mindset. That yeah. upset me <laughs> when you said it. It definitely caused me, I think, weeks or months of thought after the fact, and I realized it had happened. I'd actually fallen into wanting this predictability for the future, wanting to know what I would deliver to our investors, our shareholders, our staff, and when, when we were basically betting the company on bringing a new product to market. But I'd realized I'd completely fallen into this trap that you've been telling everyone about, about this industrial mindset innovation. It is true. I mean, gosh, don't do yourself disservice, Mickey. I mean, everybody, I don't think I get it, by the way. There's moments, even at scrum.org, we're bringing out a new class or we're doing this and I fall into the same trap. It's sort of a natural thing, particularly as you've got all this history of a traditional way of thinking about stuff. So the problem that you highlighted was one where we were bringing out, obviously, a new platform. A fundamental shift, technology, and the way we thought about the problem, the data model, everything was different from our sync legacy, right? And you were saying to me, okay, how long is it going to take? When can we release the whole product? When can we get this out to market? And the other thing that you said, which I thought was very interesting, is you said, okay, can we just increase the size of the team, add more people to it? How can we throw more stuff at it, mythical man month kind of stuff, which again is a book you've read and I know you're very familiar with. And I had to say- it didn't help. So (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know it doesn't help. And I said, look, Mick, I think ultimately, I'll be honest, I don't know. You weren't happy with that. And certainly the board and Neilan and others weren't happy with that. So we make a lot of small bets. Let's balance these two worlds. Let's make a lot of small bets. Let's get knowledge back. And when I say a small bet, often I'm looking at trying to do the least amount of investment to get the biggest amount of learning. So I'm balancing that. Can we do a lot of small bets frequently and then over time, we're going to build some level of confidence, which gives us an idea of when ultimately we'll be able to replace Sync with Hub and with the new platform. But you're not unique in that regard. And to be honest, even I, as now I'm a CEO, so I can feel all the pain that you're in because I've got marketing and I've got a show coming that I want to present at. And, that, and people may believe in MVPs, but they want to buy an MVP. And unfortunately, your business needs the money. There's all these counter sort of things against it. Small bets is crucial and continuous learning and basically continuously getting that feedback as fast as possible into the cycle of innovation. Right. And I think this is when I saw your recent keynote at Southern Friday Agile, you made some great points about how digital has changed the innovation cycle. I feel like a lot of people hear these words, a lot of people talk, lean startup and so on. But I think some of the big challenges, they've not at a business level, at a leadership level, not actually internalized what this means, which is why it was such a disruptive thing in my own in my own thinking to hear you say this, that I was kind of thinking, yes, development needs to happen in an agile way, but unless our business is a series of small bets that then actually add up to a big bet that we may have well bet the whole company on, we're not organizationally acting in an agile way. And in the end, not supporting our teams because they're then yeah. actually committing to what may 
sound like a series of small bets, but is a one big bang plan with milestones that we need to hit and throw more people at. Thank you for your kind words about Southern Fried Agile, which by the way, if anybody's listened to this podcast, is a great show. I recommend it. One of my favorites in, this year, it was in Charlotte. It moves around down there. So one thing that's interesting, so I love the work that Gartner's doing on this. However, I've got some issues with it. So it's sort of like uh, love, hate, whatever, all at the same time. They talk about the future of delivery or this new world is design thinking followed by lean start followed by agile and i'm like well hang on a minute (laughs) isn't that industrial waterfall thinking sort of yeah get to know your customer really well get to understand everything about them model their behavior their needs empathize with them do all that sort of like media lab stuff and you know all that kind of like really cool stanford d school stuff then when you've got something out of that maybe an idea you then iterate with the lean startup methodology you know validate it etc then when you've got that all nicely in place then you move to an agile delivery mechanism which is great which implies that First, you identify your epics, then you identify your main features, then you start iterating on them in the thing. Sort of that kind of funnel. It don't work like that. It really doesn't. And it doesn't really work like that even historically. Let's be honest. This was always the friction between traditional project management and the reality. If you look at Kinefin and things like that, they talk about the mixed reality of the world of complexity. The reality is that we continuously... What we need to do, really, is we need to fund teams aligned to customers and to outcomes. Now, of course, we've got legacy, so that's going to be an interesting challenge as well, another dimension to factor into this if we're a traditional company. And ultimately, you have to sort of factor all of these things in, but ultimately, it's about teams aligned to customers and delivering value to those based on outcomes and some sort of north or mission that you're, true north or mission that you're defining. So I think that we're sort of stuck in this bazaar. And Kalida Perez obviously talks a lot about this. And, and I know that she's also on this series, talks a lot about this sort of movement towards from one age to another. And I think that ultimately the access to capital, one of the challenges we had obviously at Tarstop was our salespeople. You can't give them minimal viable products and stuff to sell. You can't task them on delivering quota in a, on these products that aren't really there yet. You can't even realize revenue. So obviously Simon and Neelan, the finance guys and operations and president would get really upset about that. So it's really the access to capital and the whole way in which things are funded is still a long way behind this model, I think. Yeah. And so I think we're all struggling or learning with basically how to connect these models, right? How to connect. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast are exactly in this situation. They have an operating model for their company. The annual budgets and P&Ls won't go away, but we realize that innovation won't happen unless you actually change that cadence, the iteration and the nature in which the work happens. So Dave, I just want to speak to one of the points that you mentioned, which is this failures I've seen of taking this industrial model that feels agile, like design thinking up front, then lean startup that, you know, then agile delivery and so on, and what it's produced. So in project to product, there's that story of Big Bang, right? Who are, I think, following some amazing practices. So basically, the new chief digital officer and CMO made some amazing customer experiences for consumer banking, for investment banking, wealth management, and so on, right? So really amazing stuff. So they designed all these screens, tons of design thinking. The IT people started on the path of making a big architecture, doing their agile transformation and delivery and so on. And these activities were separate activities, right? They were, as you put it, right? There's this bigger waterfall. And then at the end of that two years, you end up in a situation where they've designed these amazing dashboards. You can't strap those dashboards onto any car. The entire art software architecture and data architecture 
of that bank's platforms doesn't match up to what all that great design thinking has done. So they created all these great things that simply can't make into the customer's hands, except in maybe one minimum viable part of one region of a country where it was proven out. So what you're saying and what we're seeing is that this approach is failing. So yeah. what do we do differently? Because I think you know, one of the things I've heard you say, that's another thing that made a big impact on me and I refer to in Project to Product is iteration gets hard when things get too large, right? The point you make on what SpaceX has done with under 100 people, right? Google's, I think, still has under 100 people on core search and has limited the size of those teams with a physical building. So can you give us some guidance on how we go from these large organizations with established operating models, this need to be more iterative, play smaller bets, and how do you connect those two? <laughs> that is the $64,000 or $64 trillion question, right? So I've got another story, and then I'll try to answer this question, because that is a that is really a hard question, Mick, and thank you for that. I miss being in your management team and getting those hard questions on a regular basis, but this brings me back, actually. So there's a large airline that is maybe somewhere in Europe, and they have got this digital initiative, and it's brilliant. They're doing a fantastic, they create this digital studio. It's a scrum studio. They're delivering frequently. The case study is on our website, so I should probably say their name then, KLM. And they're doing an amazing job. And they're delivering incrementally. If people on the podcast ever use their online app, it's amazing. Sorry, not their online app, the app on the phone. Interestingly, if you go onto the website, it's a different experience. What the phone, you know, it sort of like knows lots about you, starts building up, hey, you know, you can do this on the plane. Hey, these movies, pick your movies and we'll preload it on your screen, all that kind of stuff. Differentiating. What's interesting though is you build these studios and then the antibodies of the existing business, for good reason, start attacking them. So if you'd have asked me this two years ago, I'd have said the way to solve this problem is the sort of classic build a new organization and incrementally move your products and features into it. The problem I see with that is at a certain point when this organization becomes successful, and by the way, KLM are managing this brilliantly and they're dealing with it appropriately, but they themselves, for good reasons, saw the services being not given to them by the things that they're dependent on. So then suddenly they had to take that bit into the studio, but then the other things that that service was being used for were like, well, hang on a minute, that's part of us. Code ownership becomes an issue. The architecture starts breaking down around them. And now they're managing it brilliantly but, and dealing with it appropriately, and I applaud them, but it's really, really tricky. So if you've asked me a number of years ago, I'd have said the best way of dealing with this is to build studios or innovation hubs and then start incrementally moving the business in. However, the reality is at a certain size, it almost becomes unmanageable and it doesn't work. It stops working because of the, the threat that it creates in the business, because of other dependencies, and you get these huge things. Which brings me to sort of start thinking, what I think organizations need to do, and this is a large bank, a different large bank than the bank that you're talking about. What's really exciting about what they're doing at the moment is they've literally ring-fenced a part of their business, a huge part. So they minimize dependencies. They've aligned it to outcomes and customers. They've funded teams, not work. And they've empowered, looks a bit like Spotify, whatever it's called, some sort of model where you've got these teams, these scrum teams, basically supported by a community that makes it successful. They've also, using basic iterative development, they meet every three months to look where they're going in terms of direction. They accept that the architecture is going to evolve continuously. And architects are no longer sort of like 
pontificating. They're mm. out helping teams deliver this stuff. They're making mistakes and accepting those mistakes, but they're focused on delivering value to their customers and they're doing that which it sounds a bit like a studio, but it's at a much larger scale. They've really taken that part of their business and ring-fenced it and are starting to go. And I think that's kind of perhaps the only way, but I don't know. It's really hard. I see three main things. Alignment being number one. Organizations need to align their teams to the right customers and to the right problems. Secondly, I see people-centric. They need to build an organization that supports those teams through technology service, through that. And obviously, as part of alignment, they're deciding what core is and what context is. They're deciding what they're focused on. They then need to fund it correctly. So fund the teams, not the work. And they need to put in place, and this is what I think you guys are doing, and you talk about this a lot, is build metrics that actually show how it's working so that the bottlenecks, like in the case of KLM, the bottlenecks on these services, you literally get escalated to the top, and then you decide what you're going to do. Do you just slow down innovation because of certain things? Or do you allow them to sort of build their own, acquire some service? It's just crazy. I mean, it's even things as simple as getting a virtual machine set up. I can do that in minutes on Amazon. Actually, I can't. I can pay somebody to do that in minutes on Amazon. (laughs) Maybe 10 years ago, I could have maybe tried to do it. Whereas you see these organizations, they issue a ticket. It flows off into some magical system. Three days later, they get the wrong virtual machine set up. And you're like, uh, what is that? Kurt Bittner, a colleague of mine, said something the other day, which I thought was super interesting. He goes, organizations aren't built about delivering value. Organizations are about people, power systems, tribes. You know, they're sort of like fulfilling people's need for that sort of power structure and the like, the sort of caveman medieval, king, all this kind of stuff. It's, they're there to fulfill that and to provide money for you to sort of live. The outcomes are just coincidental. And I thought that was kind of a worrying view of modern organizations. But when I go into many of them, I see them as that. And then that obviously causes lots of trouble. So alignment, people-centric, funded correctly, measured appropriately. Each of those four or three and a half is quite... <laughs> Profound and so hard I think, to do, by the way. I want to come back to some of those, Dave. But I think some of the frustration you and I have with seeing these really motivated people within these organizations, senior leaders, executives, trying to push their companies, and then having this corporate immune system from an industrial operating model kick in is—it's difficult. So I think we both so badly want to help them see a better path. And I think to your point the best thing I've seen is exactly is to provide, by the way, Jeffrey Moore's Zone to Win, which I don't think has been applied very much outside of tech companies, right? I did embed it in project to product because I thought it was so fun. And I still do think it actually does provide a way of managing some of this, right? Where you simply take a product value stream and you say, this one is not responsible for top line. This one's responsible for innovation. You don't go by modal, right? You do not need to go by modal to do this, but you say this is innovation and you're not going to blow it up in six months because it's not delivering top line. We've got, you basically set a business result you want out of it. It could be daily active users, right? If you're trying to bring new people to a new offering and then you do exactly what you do. You fund the teams to do that work to that different business goal. And I think Part of the problem is when in this world of product management, everything is going to a set of projects going to this one big top line goal or this one big bottom line growth goal, it just never allows you to innovate, right? It never allows you to start anywhere because you're trying to transform everything at once. So 
how are you seeing companies success? Because I, mean, I think your Kalem example is amazing, right? It's, it just becomes a question, they did the right things. How do they then take that learning and bring it out to the organization before the antibodies kill it? And it's still early days at KLM. Obviously, ING Bank is another good example. I think it requires inspirational leadership. I think it requires a market that isn't in decline. It requires you know, some stability and some, some luck, dare I say. Your book talks about this. It's an awesome book. And it really talks about the fact that, are we going to just end up with 20 or 40 big companies doing everything? I noticed Tesla's moving into the insurance market. It's funny. I was speaking at an insurance meeting, right? Insurance people. And I was talking about Scrum and Agile and that. And they were sitting there going, nodding their heads. And, and I did say, so why does it take 40 people to put a rocket up in space and land it? And then 5,000 people to build a claim system. And they were like, well, you don't understand the complexity of claims. And I said, you don't understand. And one person did say, but we're not governed by the laws of physics. So it makes it more complicated. <laughs> and, and I was like, that's a very fair that is an interesting point. point. But what's interesting is that these digital companies now, whether it's a Google, whether it's a Tesla, whether it's whoever, Facebook and, and the like, they're getting so much data that suddenly all these companies like insurance companies are going to be disintermediated. Yeah. You know, the fact that Nest is capturing more data about the home than you can put in your survey to do your, you know, your home contents insurance or whatever. These sort of things... Amazon knows what you've bought so much that it actually knows. It can build the list of the products that you have in your house that you're insuring. Wouldn't it be cool if when you bring it in, hey, do you want to add this to your insurance or not? How cool would that be, right? I don't want it to be a world where these companies are running everything. I don't want it to be that world. So the question is, how do we help these other companies, these traditional companies, deal with this to navigate this world? And I think it is exactly that. I think you build these teams, align them. I think that's all you really can do and then get out of their way. But the problem is there's this friction that you've highlighted over and over again between traditional sort of risk management and capital management. They're so nervous. I mean, realistically, most of these companies, it wouldn't matter if 20 people for three months or 60 people for three months were building something that ended up not working. That's okay. As long as they got some learning out of that, that ended up building something even better in three months' time after that. Small bets, that's the bottom line. The other interesting question is, do we need organizations of the size that we have? Have they evolved because of the thing that Kurt was saying to a massive level of numbers of people, primarily to satisfy the needs of the people that are running those organizations, not to deliver the value that they seek, these are all big questions, Mick. And These are big questions. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me is that we've largely independently started gravitating to, I think, some similar answers or at least hopes for answers. So I think one of the, the most interesting things I've heard you talk about recently is just the need for empirical organizations, right? They need to understand the what. They need to understand the customer. They need to place the right metrics and for agile, for scrum and for scaling. So I feel like... You know, it's been a year I've been on the road doing the project to project and helping these very large organizations. I've now simplified my message a lot, just saying you need to start measuring, right? I need to start measuring from the customer point yeah. of view. And you need to start measuring these basically these product value streams. Because if you try to do everything at once, because you have built such a large organization with 5,000 people working on a claim system, you won't get anywhere, right? And then yeah. a bunch of people will like, go by the time you get the first report anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, I think this 
and I share something of an empirical approach to this. So if you could speak to this, because I think this really is one of the ways that our listeners and that our community can take this forward is to understand what and how to measure. And we just need to shift them again from not funding projects, but funding teams, not funding activities, but funding customer-centric delivery. What have you learned about this? I I think actually there's a step before the measurement and that's the alignment or the project to product, as you would call it. I mean, ultimately, I think that the most important thing that we can do, not saying everything is going to be products, but the vast majority of the value that you deliver should be through the containment that are products. And a product isn't actually shrink-wrapped and et cetera. It has a boundary. You know what's in it and what's out. It has a defined customer, client, outcome. It has some value that can be measured. A friend of ours that has been in a couple of organizations that we've worked with, he spends a lot of time building product models. And the f- most important thing that he did was build those product models. He then does what you're saying, which is then, okay, now we've got the product. So we understand what the things are, what the elements that we're delivering. Now, hopefully those elements are significant chunks of a value stream that has a customer involved. Yes. Some of our organizations have got so navel gazing that they end up building products that support products which support products. And obviously in the financial services sector, that has to be the case for lots of separation of control and all that kind of mumbo jumbo. But I'm sure it's very important and lots of good reasons. But, but who cares? You've got your products, you've got your boundaries, you've got your value, then you can start measuring it. Start building that measurement in. And then what's interesting, and I have to quote a bit of Yoda. I don't know if it is Yoda that said this. There's no such thing as the truth, but the pursuit of truth is a worthy action and a worthy activity. Because ultimately, as soon as you start measuring these things, you realize, one, that the things might be wrong. These aren't the right boundaries. So you then can start looking at it. The other thing is you can start seeing then ultimate value because hopefully you're measuring the ultimate value stream as well. And then you can start doing some causal relationships, which may or may not be there, honestly, but it at least gives you some semblance of value. So for instance, don't become agile. There's no value in becoming agile unless you're becoming agile for a reason. Learn about Scrum. That's a different matter. But don't do Scrum just for the sake of it. It's fabulous. It's great. You do it to deliver value. If you do it to deliver value, then you start measuring that. I agree with you 100%. Measures after alignment are crucial. Yeah, and I think your point on alignment, if you're not aligning to something that's customer value, you're measuring the wrong thing. You're not measuring something that innovates for the market. You're measuring some internal activity of sorts. So. That Yoda, I think there's, there's depth in that, in that Yoda quote, right? Because Carmen Diardo and I were struggling with this the other day with a customer who was just making this massive agile DevOps transformation initiative and based on things that made, well, they couldn't speak to what they were based on. So we just realized that, yes, there's an understanding of continuous improvement being important, but we started just repeating the phrase, it needs to be data-driven continuous improvement, right? You need to find that alignment, find that measurement, and then just pursue perfection and lean speak, but at least pursue improvement in where we are with more software organizations today. So I could not agree more that I think these are some of the catalysts that will get at least the business side, the organization structures thinking the right way. Anything else you want to share with us with your learnings? Uh, I'd like to thank you for the book that you wrote and the work that you're doing. I think that And I'm hoping that Scrum and Scrum.org and the Agile community that I represent can take advantage of this. And 
It's interesting. We've been concentrating so much on the do part. We've been concentrating so much on building great, fabulous teams that do great things, the art of the possible, which is incredibly important. But if you don't align them correctly and provide them with data as to what the value is that they're delivering, you're kind of not going anywhere, really. So I'm really excited that some of the thoughts that you're introducing are helping us get better alignment, are helping us start measuring correctly. It's funny, we created, and we've been doing a lot of work in the last year, something called EBM, Evidence-Based Management. Mm -hmm. And what EBM does is it basically provides a series of questions to start building those value-based dashboards. And what's interesting about the workshops that we're running at the moment, in fact, we have a beta of one that, that then takes that and allows you then to start planning your portfolio or bringing that feedback back into your planning cycle. What we've learned from that is the first question is, oh my God, that the customer always asks or the person that the workshop always asks is, oh, hang on a minute. What are we doing? What is the boundary of the domain that we're working on? What is the product that we're serving? Who is the customer? Those questions are fundamental and you get massive disagreement in the room then you start bringing those people together so as i said the pursuit of truth is incredibly worthy and the value that you get out of that isn't just because you find the truth it's because you actually get the whole team to get some alignment as well so i think that's super super valuable yeah that's all i'd like to probably say we could talk for hours about this mick as we have and we will again Yes. And I also want to take this moment to thank you as well, because I think in terms of all the many reviewers of Project to Product, you gave the most copious and most profound and, and most meaningful notes that really had a, a massive impact on the book. So thank you so much for that. Again, Dave, where can people find you online and, and follow? What uh, you come to dave.west at scrum.org, or you can always follow me on Twitter at David J. West, or obviously find me on LinkedIn, the usual ways. I'd love to talk. This conversation, I think, super important. We've got a lot of problems in the world, whether it's bushfires in Australia, whether it's planes going down, whether it's... The world is a pretty tricky place at the moment. But I honestly believe that humanity can solve all these problems and it can solve it through capitalism and it can solve it through building great products. And in my opinion, if we can build these products better, motivate people better, not only do we build better products that serve the world better, whether it's vaccines or better cars that use limited energy, etc., we can also build happier teams doing it. So I honestly believe that this is a moral crusade that we're on as much as it is a intellectual crusade. So thank you for your time, mate. And thank you for those words, Dave. I think everyone got to hear some of the inspiration that I was beginning from you over the years. So really appreciate you joining. Thank you and let's do it. Thanks again today for joining me on the podcast and providing some amazing insights, as always. I encourage you to leave a review or to follow me and my journey on LinkedIn or Twitter at Mick underscore Kirsten or using the hashtags Mick plus one or project product. Dave's Twitter handle is at David J. West if you want to follow him. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for project to product to get the book and remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.